that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. <coughs> Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will, will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Father, we are so thankful for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that he did accomplish on the cross our redemption. He paid for sins, past, present, and future. And Father, we celebrate that today. Every day, Father, we rejoice in our Savior for taking our place on the cross. And Father, we especially remember him today, proclaim him today as we celebrate our Lord's death as he comes. And Father, it was a terrible price that was paid in giving your only son, laying on him iniquity of us all. But thank you that it was a victorious death as well, for he rose from the dead and offers to us, because of that, the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of eternal life, and even abundant life in him. And so, Father, we're so thankful today for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you, as an almighty God, are a personal God. You are a present help in trouble. You love us with an infinite love. Father, you seek to direct us in our life, comfort us in our life, help us navigate life. Father, thank you that you are a present God. And Father, you have created us for your fellowship, and for that we're thankful. And Father, may we reciprocate, even today as we approach your word. May we seek to know more of the God, as our passage before us says, that we might come to know you and better and better each and every day, Father, so, so that we could effectively serve you here as your children. And so, Father, be our teacher and God. Equip us for the tasks and roles and missions that you've given to each of us, Father, that you might be glorified, not only in our individual lives, but even here together as a corporate family. Father, we pray for those who aren't with us today, that you'd watch over them, Father, and for those of us experiencing hardships and trials and challenges, Father, that you would comfort and strengthen and uphold us. And may we realize, Father, that you have given us exceeding great and precious promises, Father, that we might be able to navigate those challenges in life because you are all we've given. Thank you for that wonderful promise. And so watch over our study this morning. May our worship have been acceptable and may our study today be one out of worship and respect for your word. So quiet our hearts, prepare us to hear your word and implant your word upon our hearts. By your grace and through your spirit today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in this section, we find Paul giving his testimony in the first part of chapter 3, and then he turns to his passion, the passion of his heart in verse 10, and he goes on to tell us here in verse 17, the verse following this, the text we just read, to brethren, believers, follow Join in following my example. This was written for our example. This wasn't just given to us to give us some information about Paul. Paul realized in providing his testimony and, and expressing the passion of his heart, he was leaving, leaving for us an, an example. And in doing so, he, he has come to tell us what his passion is in verse 10. And that centers around that I might know him. And, and in that passage, he ends this verse where we left off this last time. He says that I, if I may, by any means might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And he's following in our text today, Paul expressing this desire to attain the, the, 
his objective in his walk in his Christian life was to attain to the resurrection from the dead. What did he mean by that? What did he mean that he might attain that, that he might accomplish that? Well, the word means to arrive at. It means to a place Paul wanted to get to. In verse 14, he calls it a goal that he could, that he wanted to accomplish, he wanted to pursue. We also see he, talk, he mentions laying hold of this objective in his life. And according to Vines, the word means to lay hold of so as to possess as one's own, to appropriate or to seize upon, to take possession of. This is something Paul wanted to experience in his life. He wanted it to be real in his life. And so what is he saying? What is he, in wanting to, what is he wanting to lay hold of? What is he wanting to seize upon? What does he want to personally experience, we might put it today? Well, looking back in our text, on one hand, we might, we might think that Paul is continuing his previous statement where he says that he wanted to be conformed to his death. Speaking of his identification with Christ and being made conformable to his death. And we know the Bible teaches that, that in our identification with Christ, being in Christ, being Christ one, there is this freedom that we can realize because our old man died with Christ. So let's go ahead and turn to Romans 6 this morning. If you would turn with me, please. Turn to Romans 6. And this is sometimes a hard passage to understand, but in some ways it's very simple. Because the Bible teaches us that when we're born sinners, we're born with a propensity to sin. And the Bible calls that, that nature that we have, that sinful tendency we have, in this context, the old man. It's also called that in the book of Ephesians and Colossians, the old man. It's called the, 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 it's called self. It's called the nature of sin. And in verse 6 of Romans 6, here in this proclamation of our freedom, it says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that that body of sin might be done away with, that we shall no longer be slaves of sin. And verse 7 says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And so in our identification with Christ as Christians, God broke the power of sin. That's really what this is. And I often call Romans 6 the Emancipation Proclamation of the Believer. Just as Abraham Lincoln proclaimed the slaves free, they were legally free, but to practically enjoy that, they had, get, had to go out and claim that freedom, did they not? And that's what Romans 6 is. God's declared us liberated. We've been freed. We just sang that in our song. We've been freed from the enslavement to sin because as unsaved, we are enslaved to that nature. We know no other way to live but to have a nature which is, propens uh, which is perpetually selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, and likes a lot of bad stuff, so to speak. That's the, na that's the characteristics of our sinful nature. We have an appetite for stuff that's bad for us. All co couched in a nature that is rebellion, in rebellion against God. But God has freed us from that. That's the good news. That's the, really the gospel for the believer. The good news for the believer is that we've been freed from the power of sin in our lives. Where the good news for the unsaved is they've been freed from the penalty of sin, which is hell. And they trust Christ as their Savior. You and I trusted Christ as our Savior to receive forgiveness of sins, the assurance of eternal life. And we've been freed from that condemnation because we are we are. We are saved in Christ. Well, we have just as well been freed from the domination of sin, that which plagues us in life, that which always seems to bring us down and bring destruction to our lives. God says we should know this, that that old man was, was crucified with Christ. The power of sin was broken in our lives. We've been freed from self. But we've been not only freed from sin, but we've been freed to live resurrected life, new life. God has also given us in its place the new nature, the new creation, the new life, 
the abundant life. And that's why verse 5 says, the previous verse here says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So we've been united with him in death. The Bible teaches that, and I don't know how that works technically. But God sees us as having been identified and united with him in his death so that the power of sin has been broken. But we have also been united in his life. We have his life in us so that we can walk in newness of life. And that's what the Christian life is, is learning to walk in newness of life, not in the, in the influence of the old, old man, the old life, the old propensity to sin and be selfish and so on, but instead we walk in the Christ life, in the new life that we have in Christ. And that's why this passage goes on to tell us in verse, if you jump down to verse 12, <laughs> I start with verse 11. Likewise, you also then reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Recognize it's true, he says. Just live in light of the fact that you've been freed. You don't have to serve sin. That's the good news. Just like the slave did not have to remain in bondage, at least legally, <coughs> the li they, they were free to go and live their lives. A wonderful thing, wasn't it? But so for the Christian, we've been free to walk in newness of life. So reckon it to be true. To be dead to sin and alive to God. That's where life is lived. Our life is hid with Christ in God, Colossians tells us. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey in its lusts. Don't let it reign. You don't have to. Sometimes it seems like it, doesn't it? That it reigns. But you don't have to. That's the good news. And it's growing in grace is learning to, to experience freedom from that propensity to, to be snarky, to be lustful, to be selfish, and so on. Instead, verse 13, present your members as instruments of righteousness, not to sin, but to God, as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. And so we have this resurrected life to enjoy. So back in Philippians chapter 3, when Paul goes on to say that he wants to experience the resurrection from among the dead, some versions like to say, it could very well be referring to that. He says, I want to be identified with Christ in my death. And he said that in the context, remember, last time, a suffering for Christ. He wanted to experience the sufferings of Christ in sacrificial service for Jesus Christ. And, and he says, in that context, I need to die to self because self does not like suffering. That could be what he's referring to. We don't like suffering. It's not, it's not something we naturally pray for, as Paul expressed in verse 10. But instead, out of that death comes life. Life expressed in, in verse 10 in the sense of experience also the power of his resurrection. That's the new life we have in Christ. So Paul could be looking back with this phrase at the end of verse 11, that, I may, that, that he might attain to the resurrection of the dead. I might learn to walk in the new life I have in Christ. But also in this context, looking forward, we see Paul helps clarify what he's saying even further. He goes beyond just living a little bit in newness of life, he mentions in verse 12 that he says, I have not attained or am already perfected. He uses this word perfected. I haven't attained yet. I haven't attained this resurrection from the dead because I am not yet perfect. That's what he says. And so, he looks, and so we see included in this statement is the idea that Paul wanted to attain a state, the state of completion, the perfection that, that God is doing in our lives. And that's God's ultimate objective, isn't it? 
In order to be fit for heaven, we're, we're going to be perfected someday when we are with him or like him. And in the meantime, God's in that business of making us Christ-like, isn't he? Now, I don't know if you have that goal for yourself. Now, some of us might think we're already there. But in all honesty, we know we're not. Let's not ask our friends or spouses or children. It'll, tell, it'll make it very clear that we haven't arrived. But that's what God is doing. In Romans 8, he tells us that he wants to, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. In Galatians 4.19, it says this, My little children, for whom I travail in birth again, till Christ is formed in you. That's what God is doing. We have seen this already in the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, He who has begun a good work in you is going to perform it under the day of Christ. This is God's work. This is what he's doing in our lives. And sometimes we think when we go through struggles and trials and, and God brings convictions into our lives that God's just picking on us, but God has a wonderful plan for you. And part of that plan is, is the idea of being completely Christ-like. That's what God wants in our lives. We saw that in chapter 1, in verses 10 and 11, where God tells us that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God wants us to grow in knowledge, as it says in verse 9, that we might be filled, that's filled to the full with the fruits of righteousness. See, that's how God originally created mankind. Adam and Eve were filled with the fruits of righteousness. They enjoyed a blessed, glorious existence together, free from the curse of sin around them, free from the influence of sin within them, and they were filled with the fruits of righteousness. And God wants to return us to that. In fact, he will someday. It may not be completed until glory, but that's what he's working towards. He's not waiting till then to do that work. He's doing it today. He's doing it now. If you're a child of God, and we can thank God in his work, because if we're left to ourselves, we'll never get there. It's not I but Christ who lives in me, as we were saying a moment ago. In considering this concept, I was reminded of the Old Testament analogy of the clay and the potter. Right? Remember that? Isaiah 64, 8, but now, O oh Lord, you are the fa our Father, we are the clay, and you're the potter. And, and all we are the work of your hands. And that's what he's doing. He's molding the clay, isn't he, in our lives. Jesus said the same thing himself when he speaks of marriage, using himself as an example. In Ephesians 5, he says that Jesus said that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. In this context where Jesus considers his church his bride, he's not going to present to himself a flawed bride. He's going to present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. In Titus chapter 2, it says that Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify her for himself, his own special people zealous for good works. What Paul is really saying in this passage is he just wants to align himself with what Jesus is doing in his life. He wants to attain what Jesus was, what, what Jesus wants him to attain, Christ-likeness in his life, perfection. And we all have a long ways to go, don't we? But the question is, have we adopted God's objective as our own? Because that's what Paul, the example Paul's leading us. I want to agree with God. I want to cooperate with him. I want to get on his, on his perfecting bus, his maturing bus, his growing bus, and be moldable. I want, to have, I want to be that that lump of clay that is very shapeable and very moldable in the hands of the potter. And that's why he says in verse 11 of Philippians 3, he says, if by any means, 
I might attain the resurrection from the dead. And Lot's like, whoa, that's risky business, if by any means. He's basically saying, God, whatever it takes for me to get there, to that place of Christ-likeness, if by any means. Now, we don't always like to go there because here's Paul opened himself to the hand of God. He's all in. And many of us are cautious about what God might want to bring us. We're careful about what, what aspect of our life he might want to put his finger on to accomplish that. We need to remember that we're in good hands, and that's a good objective, and it's a wonderful place to be, to be able to be made Christ-like. So we can do thankful as the work of God. See, Paul did not see abandonment to God as risky. Instead, he recognized it was the best place he could be. Now, Paul also recognized, as we move on to verse 12, that this is a growth process. Paul says, I haven't attained. Even who, sometimes we think of the great apostle Paul, he makes it very clear to us that he was still a sinner, still, still flawed, still had failures, indiscretions, and he says, I haven't attained. He says, I haven't attained. I'm not already perfect. He also says in verse 13, I haven't apprehended. The idea of pressing towards that goal in verse 14 means that he hasn't, he hasn't got there yet. But, what Paul, but in making these statements, what Paul expresses was a little bit of a discontentment with where he is at. I'm not saying discontentment towards God, but a discontentment with, his, with the status quo of his spiritual life. And a lot of Christians forget that. They can, we, we, it's easy to become very complacent and just be satisfied with the way things are. And yet and forget this wonderful goal that God has that is seeking to accomplish in our lives of making us Christ-like. And we have to remember then, in order to avoid complacency, we have to remember what the elements of growth are in our lives. God makes it simple, doesn't it? Back in Philippians 1, verse, verses 9 through 11, it says we need knowledge that leads to a growth and discernment and fruitful living. In 2 Peter 3.18, God says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we have to grow in, in enjoying his love and grace and goodness to us and grow in knowledge of him. 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Ephesians 4, 15, the admonition to the church is to speak the truth in love that we may grow up in him in all things who is the head, Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 5 reminds us that not only do we have to be in the word, growing in the word, learning the word, feeding on the word, but we have to use the word. Hebrews 5, 14, in regards to maturity, says this, but solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have the senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Use. We have to use the Word of God, don't we? We have to apply it. It has to get beyond theory into the heart, does it, in our lives. And we know that's accomplished often in trials. Trials, maybe God force feeds us, in a sense, use. He forces us to get exercised and to apply the Word of God because He puts us in situations that we don't like and 1 Peter 1, 7 says that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God sometimes force feeds us the opportunity to exercise so that we can see his goodness, his grace, his, his faithfulness to keep his promises, the peace that we can actually experience in spite of our circumstances, because we so often live under our circumstances, don't we? And so Paul here recognizes that this path to perfection, to maturity, 
But quite frankly, it seems like a little process, but it seems to be ongoing. And that's really the point of this passage. It never ceases. And that's why he says in verse 12, he says, not that I've attained or I'm already perfect. I'm not there yet. It's a growth process. He says, but I press on. Because I press on. He finds that in, in this process of growth that there needs to be a continuance, a determination, a commitment, a perseverance. But he says that in the light of verse 12. He, say, he says that in the light of his statement that I'm not there yet. Because in spite of my imperfections, in spite of my failures, I'm going to press on. And maybe he's leaving for us an example that as Christians, we're not to be discouraged just because we fail. And it's an easy, easy place to go, isn't it? To maybe just throw in the towel. I give up. This is impossible. Well, in reality, saying this is impossible is a good place to be because it is impossible in our own strength. You know, just saying, it's only through Christ in me. And that's what we learn sometimes when we, when we seek to survive in our own strength. And so... Paul says this, I'm going to press on in spite of the fact that I'm so flawed. I really think that's what he's saying. We think the Apostle Paul was flawed? That's what he's saying here. But in spite of that, I'm going to press on. I'm going to keep moving. In, sp in, in spite of the fact that I'm racking up frequent failure miles, I'm going to keep on. I'm going to keep on flying. I'm going to press on. You know, that attitude, no doubt, for you and I to do that, we need to really rest in God's mercy towards us, don't we? Recognize the, the God's nature to forgive. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes him will have mercy. That's all God wants out of our failures. He just wants an honesty. Whoever confesses and forsakes. When we see our failures, God doesn't want us to bury us in self-pity. He wants us to press on. But the first step to pressing on is the honesty and willingness to confess and forsake him. And that wonderful psalm, Psalm 103, which, in which God understands our frame and knows we're dust, he says this, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. And the, 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 word, the Bible is full of statements of the, the, the greatness of God's mercy. Verse, later in that chapter, in verse 17, he says this, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. God's mercy. We never deserve God's favor in our lives. Grace, God's grace, God's love, God's mercy is undeserved and unearned. We'll never deserve it. We'll never get to the place where we think, okay, I deserve to be used by God. That's, not what, Paul, that's what Paul's saying here. He's not saying, I'm, I'm, I finally achieved a place where I'm worthy to be an apostle. In fact, he said just the opposite. I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. I'm flawed. But I know in spite of that, God wants me to use me in spite of myself. That's why that wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 1 that says, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things, things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing things that are. And if you read that verse, we need to be in all honesty say, I qualify. That's me. Then it says that all flesh should 
let no flesh should glory in his presence, because of him are you in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. See, God uses us in spite of ourselves. Now he wants us to be humble before him and have our sins confessed, but he wants us to press on. Not in our greatness, but in his. Not in our strength, but in his. And so Paul says, I press on that, verse 12, I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold, laid hold of me. Now it's always, Paul has a sometimes unique way of wording things. But he says, I want to I experience, I want, to, I want to seize upon the reasons Jesus saved me. Why did Jesus lay hold of me? Because he saved me. I want to lay hold of that. I want to align myself with his purposes of what he's doing with me. And I think this not only includes God's will for our lives, as we like to say, or for Paul's his apostolic calling, but in the context here, it speaks to more than that. It speaks to the essence of life itself. Galatians 1, 15 and 16, Paul says, But when it pleased God, he separated me from my mother's womb and called me to his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, and so on. I think the key phrase here is not only that he was he called to preach, but he was called to reveal his son in him. Not just to him, but in him. And Paul says, I came to be, an, God called me to be an example of what it means to have Christ be seen in me. And I think that when Paul says here that I may lay hold of that in the context of attaining the resurrection of the dead, he's talking about, I want to experience, I want to get a hold of the reasons Jesus saved me. See, God didn't just save us so that someday we could join him in eternity. He saved us to make us like his son, and he begins that work the moment we get saved. And so laying hold, getting a grip on the things of God and the reason I'm here, why God saved me, what he has for me, so that my Christian life was more than just head knowledge, it becomes heart knowledge. And, that's, and, and, and so Paul summarizes, this is what I want to lay hold of. This is my passion in life. And though all of us, including Paul and me, have had other goals and objectives and occupations and just things in life, but undergirding them all and overriding them all was his passion to know him and to know the reason God laid hold of him in life. And so in order, in order to do that, he said, he repeats to himself, once repeats, excuse me, once again, I, I do not count myself to have apprehended. He wants these believers to be perfectly clear. I'm not saying that I've gotten there. I, I don't achieve, I have, I'm far from achieving that. He says this statement in, here in verse 13. The one thing I do, this one thing I do, this one thing. You know, the way he puts that in this phrase makes me speak of there's one lifeline I grab onto in the midst of these struggles. There's one thing that I have to keep on doing. There's one thing that I, that I just, it's kind of like grit your teeth, determination, to be faithful to the purposes of God. So there's one thing I'm going to be, be determined to continue in my life. And it's, you know, we might read it and think, well, it's really two things here in this verse, but it's really the result of one movement, a movement towards God where he says, I want to forget those things which are behind and reach forth to those which are ahead. It's kind of one thing. It's one movement, but two sides of the same coin. It's 
backwards and forwards of what is behind and what is ahead here in his life. And I think this is so important for us to, uh, to accomplish in our lives, forget things that are behind. A lot of us have a lot of bad stuff behind. And I think what he's saying here, and, I, and, and, and the way I might put this is, don't let yesterday ruin today. Don't live in yesterday. Don't let the things that happened yesterday define my today and tomorrow. And one of those things is obviously our failures. Paul is staying on that theme here. Don't let those indiscretions, those bad decisions, those failures, lack of faithfulness, overshadow today. Too many Christians live in the shadow of past failures. And though there are consequences to decisions that we have to live with, I think that's not what he's talking about here. They're talking about forgiving ourselves. Isn't it? Forgiving ourselves begins with accepting forgiveness from God. Because that's ultimately the one who has the power to forgive. And too often people can't forgive themselves. And the weight of those past failures weigh heavy on their, on their conscience and on their heart. And at the root of it is they sometimes just can't believe that God can forgive that sin back there. <laughs> God, and they forget that God can heal. But they don't know that God can really restore. But that's really the whole message of the New Testament. That's what we celebrate today in the Lord's table. That God heals the broken heart. He heals what is broken. He fixes what is awry in our lives. He forgives and he cleanses. And that simple verse we often use in light of our sins and failures, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, though it is conditional, but if we're going to be honest, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. That's the key word. Put that, highlight that in your Bibles. Put it in capital letters. God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives. He cleanses. He restores. He is faithful. He puts different ways in the scriptures. In Psalm 42, he, he picks our feet out of the miry clay, doesn't he? He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. In Psalm 25, in the context of a bird being caught in a net, illustrating our propensity to be swallowed up with sin, he says this in Psalm 25, 15, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. You know, sometimes I think it's pride that prevents us from experiencing forgiveness and experiencing restoration and recovery. Because we sometimes just don't, we want to admit I was that bad. That I actually made that bonehead mistake. That I actually have that weakness. And that flaw. Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us the heart is deceitful. That's that old man that we talked about. The heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You just, in other words, God says you don't even know the depth of your depravity. And hopefully you don't get to know it. That's our freedom in Christ. We shouldn't have to. And so honesty before God recognizes that I have a nature which, the, which Paul calls in Romans 7 exceedingly sinful. And when I make a mistake, it's simply because I've gotten my eyes off the Lord, I've gotten away from the Lord, and I've done something that is un, in, unthinkable. 
and what's required for that is both honesty and humility. Isn't it? Honesty and humility. But when we do, God is faithful to forgive. It's amazing. His grace restores. He forgets our sins. He puts them behind our back. He removes them as far as the east is from the, from the west, and he doesn't hold grudges. And that's what we rest in, the grace of God, when that occurs in our lives. We cannot let yesterday ruin tomorrow. And that happens way too often when we can simply rest in the loving, faithful grace of God when we, when we confess our sin before him. We can then press on and move on, can't we? I think another thing, maybe not a direct application from this verse that often afflicts people is past abuses. Let's, let's, let's address the elephant in the room. Many people allow past abuses affect us today. And it's complicated. And it's deep, often in the depths of a hurt in our hearts. Because sometimes victims think that they did something to deserve the abuse. And they need to realize that it's the furthest thing from the truth. They need to come to the point where they realize the depravity of the offender. That the cause came from another sinner who had, who did either did not know the Lord, ignored the Lord, didn't follow the Lord, and, and, and committed an offense upon often the innocent and vulnerable. And Jesus has a soft spot for the innocent and vulnerable. It's expressed in his love for children, his warning about offending children. And I believe that represents all who are, who are vulnerable. And the first thing a person has to realize is that it was a bad person making awful decisions to treat another so horribly. And the abuses that mankind that commits upon each other is completely just unbelievable and unthinkable in life today. So what do you do when that happens? Do you live under the shadow of that abuse? But why should they? When the, the problem was not caused by that though it may have affected that. And in reality, why continue to live in the victim's role, which will cripple your outlook for today, ruin your tomorrows, because some evil person affected you yesterday? It's hard. It's difficult. But I think in Christ we can forget what was behind to the best of our ability. We can give it to the Lord who who loves us with an infinite love. We can rest in his loving arms. We can entrust that person to God to deal with as he sees fit in his time because vengeance is of the Lord. Forgive if we can. But we need to move out from underneath that shadow. We need to leave the past where it belongs, in the past. Nothing we can do in, 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 our, in our distress today can change what happened yesterday. So why not rejoice in the Lord? If one person in life who is faithful and loving will never leave you nor forsake you, will never fail you and never abuse you. That's where we find the rock on which we stand. We cannot let victim mentality affect how we live today and tomorrow. Instead, as it says here in our verse, we can reach forth 
to which is before us. We can reach forth to the, to, the, to the hand of God, to the person of God, to the love of God. I think the ESV translates this straining forward. It's like picturing a runner in a race that is leaning for the finish line. See, God has wonderful things planned for us, and he understands our sufferings in life. We have our own personal struggles and failures. We have the affliction of the curse around us that affects our lives, and we have sinful people that often bring abuse to our lives. But God says, look to me, and live. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look unto the one who is faithful, who has given us promises that he will ever be with us. And in there we can find direction and meaning and purpose in life. We can reach forth. See, for the believer, God is virtually extending his hand of grace and love and comfort to those who are hurting. We need to take it. We need to look forward to what he has for us, to the life he's planned for us, to the joy we can find in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's why Jesus came. He came to rescue us. He came to heal. He came to save. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's table. Not only deliverance from eternity in hell, but from deliverance from all that afflicts us in life. Healing and hope is found in Jesus Christ. And that's what we celebrate in our Lord's table today. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are a faithful God. That you never leave us or forsake us. You never fail us. You never violate your love towards us. You never leave us alone. Father, you provided for us and shed a multitude of promises that assure us and reassure us of your ongoing faithfulness and love and provision, your strength, your power, your wisdom, and your comfort. And Father, we pray for those, those of us, Father, who are, which is all of us, who, have, who are not arrived. We are past failures, Father, that so often Satan will bring up and afflict our consciences. But may we put them under the blood. May we realize that you are faithful just to forgive and to cleanse, to put us back on a path for fruitfulness and usefulness for your glory. And Father, for those who have experienced some form of abuse, Father, we pray that they might find hope in you, strength in you, purpose and meaning for a brighter tomorrow. And so, Father, as we celebrate our Lord's table today, may we rejoice in our Lord Jesus as our Savior, as our friend, as our keeper, as our guide, as our healer, as our, as our, as our helper and our hope. So direct our attention to him today. May you receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> First Corinthians 11, we're reminded to celebrate the Lord's death when, as often as we choose to. We choose to do it once a month. There's no real time frame given. The important thing is that we proclaim him till he comes. We remember the Lord's death till he comes. And God, in doing that, reminds us of what we studied this morning. It reminds us that God saved us for a purpose. He came to rescue us, and we rejoice that we'll never experience the wrath of God, and God because God poured his wrath out on the person of Jesus Christ. We'll never experience that, that in eternal hell because Jesus experienced that for us. But we also recognize that we need not experience and, put our, and allow ourselves to be destroyed by the effects of sin in our daily lives because Jesus has given us the victory. He's promised us his presence and given us his promises. And so we proclaim him. He is the essence of life. And that's what Paul spoke of in this morning in Philippians 3, of pursuing, understanding the real essence of life, that, 
that life is hid with Christ in God. And that was his pursuit. So, so this formality, this ritual as we go through, is really meant to be practical, not just ritualistic. It should be a time when our minds can settle on, focus on, and rejoice in the, the, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we take those elements, he recognizes, he says, this body is broken for you. You. Put your name in you. That's it's broken for you. Because God is that loving and caring in our lives. And do it, do it to remember him. So do it in rejoicing in him and respecting him. In the same manner, as he says, this, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Because this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Jesus gave his blood for us. He's giving his life for us on the cross. And so the Lord's table is an opportunity to celebrate and rejoice together in what, from a distance, was a terrible death on the cross. Not only the physical agony and pain our, our Lord experienced, but the fact that his own father turned his back on him and laid on him in the tree of us all. And yet he rose from the dead. And you and I can enjoy the, the benefits of that victory because of Christ and the fact we celebrate today. But we do so in a respectful manner. In Corinth, they were abusing the Lord's table in, in the, way they, the way they conducted themselves. And so God gives instructions to, to verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Instead, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so God asks us to be sure that we approach this in that worthy, respectful manner, the parts that are right before him, so that we can give him the glory he is due. So we're going to take a moment for silent prayer to allow you to sort things out between you and the Lord, and then we'll continue the celebration together.